Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. So this morning we're continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah, um, stopping this morning at at Nehemiah chapter 4. And we're going to talk about what our response should be when forces oppose God's work. Have you ever gotten to a point in your day where you're just done with people? I'm guessing through the, the words and the, the chuckles that I'm hearing that, that maybe that, that is a thing, that, that we have, have felt that way. Like, and not just like a person, like all people. It's just, you know, I'm, I, I'm done with, with humanity as it stands for today. I'm going to go to bed and wake up, and we're going to reset this day, and, and I will deal with people then. Typically for me, this comes up when, when I'm trying to get something done. When there's a task that I'm trying to get done, and it's, it could be something super simple, but the addition of people into the equation makes it difficult, makes it seem like I'm trying to climb Mount Everest when all I want to do is get this thing from point A to point B, and the people involved are, are making it way too hard. For those of you that don't know, I'm, I, I work in IT sometimes, and I have a running joke with my colleagues that my job would be the easiest job in the world if there were not people involved. If we just had computers that we were working with the whole time, this would be like, we would get it done really quick. For any of you that have ever spent some time at the DMV, I, I'm sure you could potentially empathize. Um, if you haven't seen Greg Morris. He has a great story for you uh, to commiserate about that. Sometimes we know what it is that we're supposed to be doing, but everything and everyone is slowing down the process and getting in the way. Nehemiah felt called by God to restore the people of God back to the place and the presence of God. Right? We talked about that chapter one. That, that was the call, is to take the people of God out of exile back to the place and the presence of God. The temple had been rebuilt, but the enemies kept on attacking. Walls needed to be rebuilt so that the people of God could be secure and so that they could live in the promise that had been given to them. One thing that... that I just never thought of, and you say, man, Matt, you're a pastor. You should probably be thinking about this a little bit, Um, is that if Nehemiah didn't show up and and these these walls weren't rebuilt, just, just how important was it that these walls came about? How important was it that the city of Jerusalem actually exists? Well, if we look back, there's a prophet that came before Nehemiah. There's the time of Nehemiah, and that prophet is Isaiah. And there's this prophecy that's given that talks about a Savior coming into the the walls of the city. That's how important it was that this city be rebuilt. That's how important that these walls be rebuilt. Without this process coming together, without these walls coming together, 
How was the Savior supposed to enter in the first place? Now, now let's be clear. Does that mean that if Nehemiah said, you know, I'm good, I don't really feel like doing this, does that mean that God wouldn't have been able to do what he was supposed to do? No. The, the walls would have been built, but that's what was riding on the city of Jerusalem coming together. So Nehemiah has the labor. He has the resources that he needs to get the job done. What could possibly go wrong? And then comes Nehemiah chapter 4, and we see what could go wrong. So Nehemiah chapter 4, starting verse 1 through 3, when Sanballat heard, and Sanballat's the bad guy, if you couldn't tell from his name, Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will their... Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was by his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing on it would break down their walls of stone. Now, you may not know people named Sam Ballot and Tobiah, but do you know people who act like that? Are there people in your life who are ready and waiting to criticize and to break down and to attack what it is that you know that God has called you to complete? The, the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people attempted to stop them by not just by physically breaking them down, but mentally. Long before there was any physical threat of violence, ridicule and insult were used. And so you might wonder, why, why do they care? What, what's in it for these guys to, to be up here and, and to start criticizing and to be so put off by the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt? Well, glad you asked. I, I have an idea. Um, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. He was a descendant uh, of the mixed race that settled in Samaria after the Assyrian conquest. We see that in the Second Kings. And Sanballat was part of, of a gang of three, right? He was a trio. And the second in that tri trio was Tobiah, the Ammonite, an official who was from an, an old family Right? If you remember back further in the Old Testament, there was a lot of reference to Ammon, Ammonite. Okay, we, we put those two together. And so we have this kind of section that's represented geographically by where the Ammonites are. We have a section that represents where Samaria is. And then in this third name, we have uh, Geshem, the Arab. And we see that in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. And so he represents this other geographical section. And so what we see here is through this trio, we have the area that Nehemiah is rebuilding surrounded by this, this group of people that are hostile to Jerusalem being rebuilt. And if we stop and think for a moment, if you are in charge of these sections, if you're governing the, the, these sections and you are gaining wealth from these areas, having a 
city that is not governed by you, a city that is, is blessed and has the, the sign-off from the emperor of Babylon, that doesn't, that's not a good thing. Anger was the root cause of Sambalat's ridicule. He was angry that this was happening. Why should the the restoration of the derelict walls of Jerusalem produce such a, a violent outburst? Yeah, it was anger, but it was also money. Sambalat saw Jerusalem as an economic threat to Samaria because when Jerusalem wasn't there, all of the trade was going through Samaria. But now we're going to get Jerusalem with rebuilt walls, a larger city, and trade is going to shift back to going through that place. All of the trans-Euphrates trade that was taking place is now going through this place instead. That's money that doesn't wind up in his pocket. It's money that that doesn't wind up in his uh, people's pockets. And so he's mad. I mean, this story is not new. We, We see that story happen Back then, we see that story happen today. So, Sanballat with Tobiah in the company of uh, a whole army of Samaria, they march to the city of Jerusalem, ready to launch an attack against the Jews. But they don't start by launching an attack against the Jews with weapons, because this is a... This is a group of people that have the patronage of, of the king of Babylon. We don't want to make him angry. And so rather than physical assault, verbal onslaught is what we, we see come from these guys. Getting inside a person's head can be a very effective method of attack. There is study after study after study that that talks about how critical it is, how critical the mindset can be in order to accomplish a specific task. So for those of you who don't know, I'm doing a lot of athletic training right now, and so I'm I'm doing a lot of swimming. And I I always promise that we're not, I feel like I've been pretty good not pulling these in every single Sunday, okay? Thank you, Jeff. Give me a little credit here. my I, one pastor ran a marathon. He said the pain was temporary, but the sermon illustrations are forever. Um, so, <laughs> so I, I'm training for for a triathlon, and so I'm uh, I'm doing a lot of swim training. That's swimming is the thing that I'm I'm not good at at all, and so that's that's where I'm starting right now. And what you notice is the first 25 meters. Super easy. The form is perfect. You can feel yourself moving through the water. Your, your breathing is fine. You're, you're not overly taxed aerobically. Everything just kind of works. You turn around and you, you hit the next 25 meters and you're like, yeah, this is like noticeably not where I'm supposed to be, but it's, it's working. And you, you kind of keep going. And, and by the time you get to like the, maybe the 150th meter, you start kind of feeling like, I don't know if I can do this. 
And if you have a, a set goal in front of you saying, okay, I have to get to 500 meters, and I'm only at the 150th meter, man, this, this is hard. And so as soon as you start to start think that way, you're, as soon as you start to consider the difficulty of the situation, what happens is your feet start to drop. And your butt starts to drop. And so if we just think about swimming horizontally, vertically <laughs> through a pool versus horizontally, we, we can all kind of understand one way is better than the other, right? And so horizontally is how you want to get through the water. And so you start considering, man, this is really hard. And the more you consider how hard it is, the more you can say, I really wish I could just get a breath like a little bit sooner. You start, your forearm starts messing up and you start lifting your head up to breathe. And as you lift your head up, your body follows you and you start tilting up more. And it's only when you, you sit, get out of your head space and say, you're fine. You've done this for an entire year. There's nothing actually wrong. This is just your body reacting to being in a place where you're not designed to be. Get over it. Put your legs up, put your butt up, and go forward. And everything's fine again. It just takes that moment of saying, get out of your own head and just think about something else for the next hour. And, you know, it's so easy to stand up here and say that. I'm still terrible at swimming. But that's the process. That's the process is saying, get out of your head and just focus on what it is that you've been called to do. If you would just stop and focus on the calling that has been placed in front of you and not on the whatever it is that that person is saying to you, then that's how you become effective. That's how you accomplish the goals that Christ has put in your life. The way that we combat the attacks of the enemy is by reminding ourselves of God's promises and his calling on our lives. My problems are not too big for God. Nehemiah's problems are not too big for God. And so if you read above in, in uh, verse 3, it, it ends in a quote, right? So Nehemiah's, it's kind of question is whether Nehemiah wrote this or Ezra wrote this. It's all written like Nehemiah wrote it. So I'm just going to say that. If you read the passage, we have Nehemiah talking about quotes from his enemy. And his response, the very next response, verses 4 through 5, says, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So Nehemiah's response to these threats, to these taunts, is to pray. Something we might be able to take away here. And not only did Nehemiah pray, in choosing to pray, he's giving up his right to vengeance. He's giving up his right to justice, and instead he's putting justice in the hands of God. I mean, we can sum this up by saying, you know, Nehemiah says, you know, God, these people are against you because they're against the people that are carrying out what you've called them to do. You handle them the way you see fit. But if we might suggest ignoring them and giving them over as plunder might not be a terrible idea. 
Maybe this is the difference between Old Testament praying and New Testament praying. <laughs> but, I mean, how often do we, do we show up to, God, did you see how they just treated me? But the real question is, for how many of us is prayer our first response? Normally, when, when we are wronged, when, when somebody is coming against us and, and they're attacking us verbally and, and they're saying all of these things about us, our first response is to say, nah. And, and then we launch on our, our own tirade towards them or, or we go to whoever will listen and we explain how we were right and they were wrong or I was just fill in the blank. But know that the first response that we see from Nehemiah in one translation says, and so I prayed. And so I prayed. If you look at verse 6, after Nehemiah makes the choice to leave his response up to God, he carries on with what it is he's called to do. So we rebuilt. So we rebuilt the wall until all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all of their heart. But when Sinbalat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, uh, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were angry. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Wait, Nehemiah still posted a guard even though he prayed for God's protection. And the, the churchy person shows up and says, dude, show some faith. It'll be fine. No. Caution, common sense, and faith are not enemies of one another. God gives us wisdom for a reason. Nehemiah was confident enough to pray and cautious enough to protect. We will pray. And, I mean, this, this should be our response every day of the week, that we will pray that God does only, what only God can do, while at the same time I'm going to do everything that God has equipped me to do. That, that, that's how I'm supposed to face every difficulty in my life. To let God do what he's supposed to do, and I do what God has equipped me to do. I can pray for protection, but I can also lock my front door. So a guard is set, and all their problems are solved. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble that we can't rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to their work. And then the Jews who lived near us came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, the enemy will attack us. And so now for Nehemiah, it's no longer, remember what we said about just sometimes you just need to not have people. Uh, now it's not just the enemy that is coming against him. It's his own workers within that are coming against him. It's the enemy as well. And then to pile on, we have the neighbor next door saying, hey, watch out for us too. I don't think you should be doing that right now. 
In verse 11, the enemies outside the walls also have something to say. And it's, it's interesting that the enemy outside the walls has something to say, that they're boasting about how no one will know, and yet it's written down in the Bible. <laughs> so somebody had to know because, I mean, they recorded it and they wrote it down. So, I mean, that's interesting to see. And then in 12, we have the people outside the wall saying, this isn't going to work. Your enemies are going to attack, not just you, but they're going to attack us. You need to retreat. Everyone is coming to Nehemiah saying, you cannot do what it is that God has called you to do. And this is when Nehemiah feels like he is 10th in line at a DMV run by sloths. Like, I just need somebody to help me out here. Discouragement can come from the people of God, from those inside, outside, or B-side. <laughs> the inside group is worried about what's going to happen if they fail. The outside group is worried about what's going to happen if they succeed. And the people that are beside, the neighbors next door, are worried about themselves. And all of that gets dumped at the feet of Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, God, there is no one for me to turn to but you. And God says, great, let's talk. I'm all you needed anyway. I am bigger than anything that you are facing today. He says that to Nehemiah and he says that to us today. I am bigger than that guy next door. I am bigger than the enemy that is outside the walls. I am bigger than that challenge, that disagreement that's happening inside those walls. I am bigger. I'm enough. In verse 13, it says, Therefore I stationed some, pe some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And when you hear that, there's gotta be some like Braveheart soundtrack going in the background. Like I just picture this William Wallace-esque Nehemiah running with like half a blue face and just like talking about freedom and yelling, right? And everybody's like, yeah, I mean, with this speech, Nehemiah turns his construction workers into warriors. Was it just his words that did that, though? No, there, there, there was more than that. There's something that changes when you take a man who has been just focused on building a wall. He's got, he's got a shovel, he's got his, his pick, whatever it is that he's using, and he's been rebuilding a wall. He's got a wall over here. He's got a wall over here. And now Nehemiah said, hey, you need to stand here. I'm going to give you a sword and a bow. You need to defend this hole in the wall. He's like, but I'm, I'm already working on the wall. This, this is a lot to do. I don't know if I can do this. And Nehemiah says, you look behind you, your son, your daughter, and your wife are right behind you. If you fail, the last thing you were going to see is the enemy attacking your family. And that is how you turn a construction worker into a warrior. 
It changes a person when they recognize what they're fighting for. You have to understand what's at stake. And so at this point, we we see this shift in the mindset of the people of God and as well as a shift in the enemy. The people of God now understand that, that they're building something to protect their families. They understand what, what's at risk, what the cost is. And the enemies of God recognize that there's a difference between fighting a grizzly bear and fighting a grizzly bear that's defending its family. In verse 15, it says, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all of the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. The man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive, spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of a trumpet, join us there, and our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half of the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. And at that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve as guards by night and workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. We're not going to clock out until the job is done. So what do we, what do we get from this? Right? All scripture is relevant. So what do we get from what we, we see here? That, that's great, Matt, that this happened however many years ago, that this, this was an event that took place in history. Did it take place in history? 100% yes. Does God waste pages in the Bible? No. So there's, there's a reason that this is here. There's a reason this is relevant. Just like the people... Under Nehemiah, we're not going to clock out until the job is done. We too are called to persevere. We too are called to to say, hey, there is a battle going on. I'm going to be effective in the battle. I'm going to be effective also in the mission and the, the calling that God has placed on my life. I can do both. If you want to follow God, you will face opposition. And we reveal our, the level of our maturity and how we respond to that opposition. We are called to respond with prayers, with perseverance. We're supposed to respond like Nehemiah. And so I prayed. We trust God to do what he promises he will do, and we show up and do our part. What else do we have to take home from this? If, we want to, if you want to protect your family, you must defend it against outside threats and restore what's broken down. What does that look like? What does that look like for us today and in, in, in this world? 
Can I tell you what an outside threat looks like to a family with kids? And this may sound super overprotective. Unfiltered internet and social media, that's what it looks like. It is inviting the enemy into your house if you do not know what is happening in the technology world that your kids are touching. And I'm saying that from a standpoint of a parent who has made mistakes in that area as well. It is our responsibility to know and to defend our family. It's, it's my responsibility as the leader of my house, but it's our responsibility as adults, regardless of if you have kids or not, to make sure that your family, whether it's your immediate family, your larger family, your church family, is defended from outside threats. And to do that, we have to build the wall. And when I say build the wall, I'm not talking about like, okay, let's... <laughs> We're not talking about that wall. We're talking about we have to, to make sure that there is a level of protection around our loved ones. But we can't allow the concerns about our enemy to overshadow the confidence that we have that God is greater. Our God is greater. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are greater. God, we thank you that when we have concerns, when we are under attack, Lord, our response is not to, to step out and to return fire. Our response is to pray. And so we pray. God, we ask that you would, would have your way in your people. We ask that, that you would protect our families. God, we come and we, we stand in the gap for those that, that don't know you, Lord. We come and we ask that, that you would, would draw them closer to you, that you would use us to draw them closer to you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move in our children. We invite you to move in, in ways that, that are, are completely new and fresh. God, we want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We welcome you here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop. 